Well, let's take our Bibles and go to 1 Kings. I want to look at the matter of finding hope. As we are getting to the end of the year, we've been looking at this matter of abounding in hope from every which way. And uh, the Lord laid this passage on my heart today. This is a passage I've preached from before. And it's a passage that has meant a lot to me this year specifically. The, the story of Elijah is a very helpful story specifically for Christians who are dealing with discouragement, shall we say depression, uh, and the, the, the questions that come up in times of darkness. But Elijah was one that God used, and God used again even after a season of difficulty as he was hiding in a cave. And why this message now? Well, uh, not only does it fit with our theme, but as we're going into the holiday season, this time of year, though it, it, it seems for many is full of fond memories and warm and fuzzies and exciting traditions, there are many people that I talk to that this season does not represent all of that for them. It represents difficult memories and challenges and family conflicts and uh, stress and, uh, and, and difficulty. And uh, many people struggle with depression this time of year. The days get colder, the sunlight goes away sooner, and the sun gets up later, you know. <laughs> sun kind of takes it, takes it easy this time of year. And it can be difficult in many respects. Family challenges and then financial challenges as you blew it all on Thanksgiving and, then you, and, and Christmas, I should say. Then you have the credit card bill come January. Uh, there's a lot of things that uh, can beat people down, but I believe we as Christians should be able to abound in hope any season of the year, especially this season of all. And I think Elijah the prophet is a great example of someone who, who did, uh, through the Lord's grace, push through. God brought him through, I should say. And I think we can learn and prepare, I trust, for this season as well. Let's read, uh, and before we read chapter 19, let me just remind you of how this, this story went. In chapter 17, Elijah comes on the scene with the two words, or the four words, and Elisha the Tishbite, as though we already knew who he was. Uh, and, uh, who, gets, who gets introduced that way? He just kind of appears, and yet we've never seen him until this point. And uh, he comes on the scene as a prophet of God, a spokesperson to bring the word of the Lord, and God prepares him in chapter 17 and the beginning of 18 for a big showdown with the prophets of Baal. He has some, some interesting uh, uh, things that we'll come back to in a moment, but after that, after after that time <clears throat> when he is with the prophets of Baal and sees God's victory over them, chapter 19, you would think, would be a great time of rejoicing, but it is not. Chapter 19 is where Elijah goes into a cave and then requests to the Lord that he would die. How do you get there? Well, let's read chapter 19 together. The Bible says, And Ahab, that was the king, told Jezebel, that was the queen, all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, 
So let the gods do to me and more also if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And don't judge someone who comes to that place. There's a lot of context that brings someone to that place. And you may not understand it, but we should not judge an individual there. We need to recognize that many, many great uh, faithful men of God and women of God have found themselves in a place like that. And we need grace to know how to help one and how to pray for them. And maybe you have been there or are there. I hope uh, you're able to get some help tonight. The Bible says in verse 5, As he lay and slept under the juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came hither, thither unto a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? I wonder if you've ever had a similar situation. And maybe the Lord doesn't speak to you in an actual voice, but uh, you say, what am I doing here? How did I get here? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it. Then he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. What's happening here? He's, he's beginning to see who God is. Not in the great wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but in that still small voice. God took him to a place where he was humbled and, and very low, but for what purpose? To hear the voice of God. And when he heard it, he had to cover his face. You know, these times are difficult times, but these are times where if you'll listen and if you'll let God work, you'll hear the voice of God. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou hear, Elijah? Isn't God patient? He continues to ask us some of the same questions. He continues to come to us so faithfully. 
And look at this verse. It looks like verse 10, but it's verse 14. It reads almost identical. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, did you compare those two verses? Do they look the same? Pretty sure they are basically identical. How does he say the same thing twice identically? Oh, that's easy. When you get in this place, you rehearse your story over and over and over again. And it sounds the same way every single time. And you reinforce your defeat, and you reinforce your misconceptions, and you reinforce your hopelessness, and uh, it becomes a, an obsession. You obsess over it, and you just continue to rehearse it, and you, rec- and you continue to, to, to say the same thing over and over and over. I have been on both sides of this. I have been the one here with the same record that just plays, And I've been the guy trying to help the person who won't stop the silly record. (laughs) He's like, can I have that record for a second? Smash! Now, let's talk. You can't really do that with somebody. Uh, But nonetheless, this is a real thing. This is where we come to. We get stuck. I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's his story And he's sticking with it. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. When thou goest, uh, when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meloha, shalt thou anoint to be a prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Does it sound like God is done with Elijah? Not at all. God's not done with Elijah. He's got more work for him to do. Uh, um, He's got to go talk to uh, these two kings. In other words, there is... There's still some monumental tasks for him. Now, he is coming to the end of his ministry, certainly. He is, at, he is closer to the end than he is at the beginning. He's about to be done, but you're not done yet. There's two kings that you need to anoint. How many people will that impact? Two nations. And then we need to appoint someone to take over for you. His name is Elisha, and he's going to take over for that spiritual ministry and that void that you will leave. Oh, and by the way, verse 18, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him, so he departed thence. All right, a couple things from this. And I'll give a few points, and I'll refer back to some verses, and maybe, Chris, you can pop back and forth. If, If I don't go too fast, you do your thing. All right. Elisha's context, first of all. How do we get to a place like this? Well, there's always some some context. First of all, he was very zealous for the Lord. And he says this twice in the passage we just read. I'm I'm jealous for you. 
jealous for God, goes along with zealous for God. He wanted to see God do something great. He wanted to see God win among his people. He wanted to see a revival, and he was so passionate about it. He wanted it bad. He had given his life to this. And sometimes when we give our lives to something and we're very zealous for something uh, and we give everything, we leave it all on the table, we, without meaning to, we do kind of set ourselves up for some potential uh, difficulties because we've left it all out there, right? Some, some disappointment possibly. He was very zealous for the Lord. He delivered the word of the Lord in chapter 17, verse 1 to Ahab, and he says, there's going to be a famine, buddy. And he says, you look out. The word of the Lord has spoken. That took some zeal to speak to the king that way. He goes and he sustains the widow of Zarephath. Well, God sustained the widow and sustained him as well through that ministry. And through that, uh, he's able to help her son. When her son passes away, uh, he's able to uh, help resuscitate him, bring him back to life. He sees some neat things as God's preparing him. Then he has a providential meeting with Obadiah, a man who was a man of faith, a man who Elijah conveniently forgets all about when he is in discouragement later. What does he say? I, even I, am the only one. Wait a minute. There's a guy named Obadiah in chapter 18. What happened to him? He didn't die. Wait a minute. What about the widow of Zarephath and her son? I don't think they died. Wait, wait, wait. What about all of the people who, who worshipped God when they saw the fire fall? We'll come back to that. I don't think they died. But nonetheless... Uh, he forgot some things later, but he had learned them early on. He experiences an unbelievable victory over Ahab and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And if you haven't read this story in its entirety, just go home tonight and read 17, 18, and 19. It's just, it, it, it reads so, uh, like an exciting uh, novel, but it's, it's all inspired scripture. It's amazing. He taunts the prophets of Baal. And let's have a challenge. If Baal is God, serve him. But if God be God, let's serve him. Don't halt anymore between two opinions. Uh, you ask your God to take your sacrifice by fire. And I'll ask my God to take my sacrifice by fire. And who, whosoever God answers by fire, let him be God. They said, deal. So the prophets of Baal, they get started and they're crying and leaping and wailing and everything else and to get to get their god's attention they start cutting themselves and of course they were pagan there's all kinds of things that pagans do to get the attention of their gods and elijah mocked them that's what it says it's right there printed in, in black and white he mocked them perhaps he's asleep perhaps he's on a journey uh, let's let, cry louder wake him up okay it didn't work. And finally, they start in the morning. They get past midday. They get to the evening sacrifice, the Bible says, and they give up. And so he gets his wood and his stones and his offering, and he, dunks, he digs a trench around it, and they, they fill the trench with water, and they, they cover everything in water so it's soaked, not once, not twice, but three times. Why? Because God wanted everybody to know what I'm about to do is impossible. And he cries out in a, a prayer that we'll come back to, a wonderful prayer. 
And God rains down fire from heaven, licking up the burnt offering, the, the wood, the stones, the, the stones, it says. And even the, the dust. That's what the Bible says. It licked up the dust. Consumed it all. Gone. And all the people worship the Lord. The Lord, he is God, they say. The Lord, he is God. Can you imagine the energy? Can you imagine what he must have been feeling? This emotional high as he is just like, this is incredible! I could never have imagined in my wildest dreams it would go down this way, but he's not even done. He says, take the prophets of Baal and kill them by the brook Kidron. They take them and they get rid of these guys. But we're still not done because, remember, there was a famine in the land. And now that this has happened, he says it's time for the famine to be over. And he says to Ahab, there's going to be rain. And he goes and he prays. Sends his servant, go look for the cloud. The servant comes back, there's, there's no cloud. He keeps praying, keeps sending, keeps praying, keeps sending. And finally, he says, there's a little cloud about the size of a man's hand. He says, I better tell Ahab. Ahab, get in your chariot. There's the sound of abundance of rain. And here comes the storm. That chariot lights out for home. Ahab's trying to get ahead of it. And the Bible says that God gave Elijah supernatural speed and he outran that chariot. This is, an, this is all part of his context of what led to his discouragement. He was zealous for the Lord, but not just that. He was a man who had expectations. He believed that rain would come. He believed the people would turn to God. And you see this in chapter 17 and 18. Uh, <clears throat> he believed, I believe, that he thought Ahab would turn to God. And you see how he responds and interacts with Ahab in 18:41 to 46 as he is helping him to get in that chariot and to get out of there. And he's not talking to him as an enemy. He's talking to him as a man that he is hoping to, to win. I think he, he was hoping and praying that not only would the people say the Lord, he is God, but Ahab would say the Lord, he is God. I think he was also hoping that Ahab would get home lickety-split and tell Jezebel, which, by the way, he did do. Chapter 19, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and with all how he had slain the prophets of the sword. He did exactly what Elijah hoped he would do, but it had a different outcome than expected. Jezebel says, oh, he did, did he? I'm going to kill him. By this time tomorrow, he's going to be gone. And so these expectations that he had turned around very quickly. He also had an expectation that he would be able to accomplish more than his fathers. Look at 19, verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a juniper tree. He requested that he would die, and he says, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my fathers. I don't know what all is in that statement, but I can guarantee you there's a lot to unpack there. Take away my life now. I'm no better than my father's. I thought we were going to get somewhere. I really thought we we're going to come back to God and the chosen people in the chosen land would finally come back to Him and we'd have a full revival. And we came so close. 
but we still fall short like we've always fallen short and all the generations before me and I'm just like them. After all, I'm no better off than my fathers. Just take me home. Expectations. When expectations don't go how you want them to go, you're set up for some discouragement, for some depression, potentially, for a a loss of faith. We expect to be healthy. We expect to have a certain lifestyle. We expect certain freedoms and certain just certain things that we just expect to be there and and, and certain relationships should be stable and certain things should just be in my life right and it doesn't go that way and expect expectations are dashed and we are susceptible what else about his context he was zealous for the lord he had expectations that were not met he felt all alone and betrayed he says twice I'm the only, the only, he makes sure to say, the only one left that loves the Lord. As I already mentioned, he forgot a couple for sure. It's amazing how when you go into that tunnel of hopelessness and darkness, you can't see things that are right in front of your face. You can't see the people that are there for you. You can't see the people that are, that are caring for you and praying for you. You just get tunnel vision and uh, you come up with your own narrative to fit it. They're going to take away my life, he says. They're going to take away my life and destroy me, so I might as well just die. He says there's nothing left to live for. You know what's interesting, if you think about this, the day he got up that morning to go to Mount Carmel, I'm sure the birds were singing and there was a little breeze maybe and the sun rose and, you know, the trees do what trees do. And it was just a normal day. And fire fell on that normal day. The next day he wakes up and he gets the news he wasn't expecting to get. You're going to die. And no, I'm not having revival. Jezebel. The birds are singing. There's a little breeze. The sun comes up. <laughs> The trees do what they do in the breeze. Everything's the same except everything's different. Well, wait, well, what is really different? It's amazing how much is all in here and just in, in here. Nothing's different, but everything's different. And all of a sudden, he no longer wants to live. There's nothing to live for anymore. Nothing. Folks, if you've ever been there or if you're there right now, you've got to tap the brakes. Tap the brakes hard. Something's not adding up here. The devil's trying to warp your vision. There is so much to live for. Today is the same day as yesterday. It's just some different circumstances that God will help us to navigate if we'll let him. But there's always something to live for. Jesus, yesterday, today, forever. He is the same. And so we live for him. And to say there's nothing left to live for because it didn't go my way and things didn't happen now it's supposed to happen is really an affront to the one who is in control of our lives. He had a lot of context. I got to move quickly. He was zealous. He had expectations. He felt all alone and betrayed. 
He was exhausted. He was emotionally exhausted. You know, there's good stress and there's bad stress, but all stress is stress. There's happy stress and there's sad stress, but it all wipes you out. You know, you might have had the best day of your life and you were just, you laughed all day and it was a wonderful day. And at the end of it, you're like, I am done. I got to go to bed. And the day that you cried all day, at the end of that day, you said, I am done. I got to go to bed. And he had been emotionally exhausted just from the excitement, the buzz of the day before when fire came down and victory was won. And he, he just still hears the people ringing in his ears. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is the God. He had so much anticipation, but he's emotionally exhausted. He's also physically exhausted. He probably hasn't gotten much sleep. He's been doing a lot of running, running faster than chariots. He spent a whole day on that mountain. If you read there, verse 29 Talks of he got there in the morning, they went through midday and then on to the evening sacrifice and then beyond they had to go down to the brook Kidron and kill these guys. This was a huge day and he wasn't done yet with that day. Then he has to go pray for rain. And prayer can sometimes, that can wipe you out. Just ask praying John Hyde. Praying John Hyde, when he died, his heart was on the other side of his heart here, yeah, had moved to the side of his body from the strain and stress of, of all of his intercessory prayer. And then at the end of the day, this marathon of a day, he outruns a chariot. He was tired. I think we need to be very, very on our guard when we're emotionally and physically exhausted. And also... Go easy on yourself. I'm listening to a guy who uses some phraseology that my wife and I both, at first we're like, Ugh, I don't like that phraseology. It just sounds too icky. It sounds too psychiatrist-ish. But he says, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, a retired pastor, he has a podcast, and he says, um, you know, we Christians are really hard on ourselves. And if we're not careful, you know, just because of how we think, we can be incredibly perfectionistic. We've got Bible verses and we've got commands, we've got demands and expectations, right? We can be incredibly perfectionistic and incredibly hard on ourselves. And uh, he says, it's not bad to be nice to yourself. I don't like that phrase at first. It just sounds, I don't know, what's wrong? With it? This guy's weak. No, actually, he's not weak. It's not bad to be nice to yourself. And so I need to take care of myself for the Lord's sake, for my family's sake, for my, for my uh, co-worker's sake, for my own sake. I'm no good to nobody if I don't take care of myself. But we are sometimes very, very hard on ourselves. I shouldn't be tired right now. This is me. I do this. My wife knows this. I should not be tired. I've had that talk with my wife just like that. This should not be happening. I am only... Uh, 39 years old, well, I just turned 40. Uh, I might be 40, but I'm not 60. What is wrong with me? Why can't I get it together? Why am I dragging my wagon? And I will just be so frustrated and so upset and then start the wheels just turning and you begin to break yourself down even, even more. Hey, folks, if you're emotionally exhausted and physically exhausted, that's okay. 
He was also spiritually exhausted. From intense prayer to intense steps of faith to intense opposition, fighting a spiritual war is as real as fighting a seen war. It takes its toll. He was spiritually exhausted. He was mentally exhausted from, as I mentioned, the sleep deprivation. That'll do something to your mind. Being on high alert all the time, that'll do something to your mind. He was flat out exhausted, but what else? He sought isolation. He forsook his companion. What did it say there in 19, uh, three? He went for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. And that's what we do when we're depressed. Some guy's walking with us to help us. We're like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, why don't you stay right there? I'm going to go feel sorry for myself. I'm going to go find a corner to die in. You just stay over there. When actually we need somebody in our life. We need to take not just this guy with us, but this guy with us, right? When we are depressed and discouraged, we oftentimes push people out of our lives we run to the wilderness and we hide in a cave. This is his context, but now quickly. So the context again, he was zealous. He had expectations he, that were not met. He felt all alone, betrayed. He was exhausted and he sought isolation. Now, how did he get out of this? We've got to go quickly. How did God lead him out? What was the first thing God did? Number one, God fed him. He ate and drank and slept. That's the first thing he did. You want to get out of discouragement and depression? Number one, eat, drink, and sleep. That doesn't sound very spiritual, but it is. I think sometimes we, as Christians, we think everything has to start with a verse. If you haven't slept, you don't need a verse. And that is not unspiritual to say that. When my kids have not had a nap and they're little, no amount of verses or preaching is going to do anything for them. Even the older kids will say, Dad, I think she just needs a nap. <laughs> they, they even know. Okay, uh, you need to sleep. And you need to eat. And you need to be hydrated. Do you know how much water helps the brain and helps the hormones and helps all the function, helping move the blood and everything? Water is amazing. Some of us, we drink the wrong things. I'm not, talk, I'm not even talking about alcohol. So I, I knew a guy who literally, I, I worked with him. I saw this with my own eyes. He drank three to four pots of coffee himself per day at the office. And uh, he was a jittery mess. Uh, he drank, but he wasn't drinking water. He did not consider water to be a beverage. Well, God does, and I think God created us, and he knows how this works. Eat the right things. Drink the right things. And sleep. Okay, you got that? Now we're ready for number two. What's the next thing that we do? What did God do to lead him out of the cave? He ate and drank and slept again. It's in there. I am not making this up. Verse 5, 6, and 7, that was the first time. Verse 8, he arose and had eaten and drank and went. All right, so before God gave him any big profound statement or counsel or anything, he has him sleep and eat and drink and sleep and eat and drink. What is he telling us here? There is a point 
where you have to be physically uh, nurtured to be able to bear some of the spiritual burdens that, you're, that are breaking your back. Uh, Jim Berg helped us with this when we went through Crying a Noisy Soul. He had the, the picture with the beams, and he had, a, I think it was a beam of some stresses and, and various hardships, and then there was this beam of, of your physical, just your physical uh, uh, body, and as the, as the physical beam would bend, your spiritual beam would bend with it. A lot of us, uh, we're, we're, we're less patient, less merciful, less loving when our physical beam is bending. Now, we do need to learn how to be able to be constant when our physical beam is bending, but it's not bad to take care of that physical beam. All right, so number one. And number two, how did God lead him out of the cave? He ate, drank, slept, and then ate, drank, and slept again. And for some of us, we just go, 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 go. We're hard on ourselves. We don't nurture ourselves, and we, we expect so much of ourselves, and it's unrealistic. God left him alone until he had this taken care of. Number three, he goes on a long journey of meeting with God, verses 8 through 11. Went in the strength of that meat 40 days. I would love to taste that stuff. Give me that. Now, honestly, there's an application there. The Lord didn't feed him junk food. He gave him something good. I think that's a legitimate application. Whatever God gave him was so good, he went 40 days with it. Hey, I'm just saying, I think we could try to uh, nurture ourselves with, with, with uh, more wholesome options. But he goes on this journey of meeting with God. And I want you to see this. God could have healed him like that. It'd be over. God did not do it. 40 days and 40 nights he went on this journey. And then when he gets there, he's not done. Now he's in the cave at Horeb waiting on God and still working through things. God let him go for days. He didn't just pick him up out of the pit. Why? Because God is interested in the journey. If God's going to get you out of the cave of depression, he is not going to do it all at once. He is going to help nurture you physically, and then he's going to invite you to walk with him more intimately on this journey. You have to embrace the journey and come to a place where you submit and surrender to God. This is the process that you are working in my life. This is okay, and I yield to it. And I'll tell you, if you have a hard time doing that, don't, don't feel bad. I have a terribly hard time doing that. I just don't want to yield to this. This has to go away, and it has to go away now. And God says, no, I'm more interested in what I'm going to do through this process in your life than I am just putting you back on the road. He goes on this journey with God. What else? Number four, he honed in on who God really was. He heard the still, small voice. He was so buzzed with fire from heaven and judgment and all kinds of crazy stuff. And the Lord says, wow, you like that? You think that's really something? You think that's what it's all about? Let me show you some wind that will knock your socks off when the stones go falling around. Well, let, me show you, let me show you something else. Let me show you what, what, an earthquake. Let me show you a fire. You like fire. You saw fire before. And guess what, Elijah? I'm not in any of that. And what I did out there, 
when I brought the fire down wasn't for you, it was for them. They needed to see that. You didn't. You're mine. You know me. You walk with me. That wasn't for you. You're living in this, in this, in this, the, the wrong realm. Come right back down to the simple things to hear from me and walk with me and know me and know my voice intimately. He honed in on that still small voice. He wraps his face up in that mantle and he just has to weep. But as with this situation, <clears throat> we don't just have a weeping moment and then we're better. What do we do? God asks us the same questions and we default to the same old answers. He hears the still small voice. He breaks through, through, through. You would think he's weeping. And then, what doest thou here, Elijah? Oh, yes. Cue the record. And what does he do? God confronts his broken record and his spin-out thinking. What is spinning out? It's where your brain just spins about the same things over and over and over. It just goes, 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 goes. I know how to spin out. I can spin out with the best of them. My brain can just burn down the same exact path and the rut gets deeper and deeper and deeper and then you finally think, I don't think I can ever get my brain out of this rut. But the Lord can do it. He'll help. But God confronts him with this broken record and I think he, I think he probably recognized it. Wait, this is the same thing I said last time. And God not only confronts him and introduces himself to him in a more real way, but then... Bottom line, last one, number six, God simply bade him return. Return to what? Well, verse 16 says, return to thy way. Get back on the way. Go back to what you were doing with the knowledge of who I am and, and, and what you've taken from this experience, that it's not over that I am not done with you, that you have still more to do before I call you out of here. When I'm done with you, I'll let you know. He says, go back and return. Return to the way, but also return to people again. Return to relationships again. He goes and he, and he has to find a bunch of people. He has to go hunt down uh, this guy and, and uh, Haziel and Jehu and Elisha, and he has to get back involved with people again. You know, people help you heal. It takes you out of yourself. The more you can focus on others, the more you can, can uh, think in terms of giving, that's when you really have, 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 more, have more living, I'll say. They re he returns to the way. He returns to the relationships. He returns to the people that he lost sight of. God had given him some hope. Verse 18, when it says, Yet have I left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. I think that, no doubt, sparked some hope in his life. 7,000? Seven? I, I thought I was the only one. We're not done here. God is at work. And I know him more than I knew him and better than I knew him before. And I'm going to go back and return. Return. But return not the same. Return as one who has really met 
with God. Folks, how do we get out of the, dirt, the, the darkness? I think it's very similar. Be willing to embrace that journey. Be willing to take care of yourself physically. Be willing to go on that long journey with God. Be willing to get to know who he really is and, and let him just uh, uh, burn off all of the excess so you can hear his voice let him confront your broken records, the spinning out that we do, and simply return by faith, God helping you to the next moment and the next moment and the next moment. Fear lives in the future. Faith lives in the present. God wants you to live with him moment by moment on the way that he has put for you. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have this Christmas season to find hope in our walk with you. Help us to abound in hope. Help us to be willing to embrace the journey that you have us on. I pray that none of us here would quit. Elijah almost did. He tried to. Jonah did, tried to, a couple of times. So many men and women of God got discouraged and, and, and tried to quit, and you did not give up on them, and I thank you, Lord, that you've not given up on us. Lord, thank you for being faithful to us in, in our journey to continue to mold us and lead us closer to yourself. Help us, Lord, I pray. And we have victory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.